the 1970s it's only right that you think of hair say what you will no decade competes with the 1970s in the hair department and to stand out from the crowd in the 1970s uh, in terms of having an outstanding head of hair now that was an achievement my guest today was voted at the 1997 ABA reunion is having the greatest afro in the history of the American Basketball Association. And you know the competition for that title was more than a little stiff. Uh, Darnell Hillman was much more than uh, just a, an incredible Afro. He was a collegiate star at San Jose State, a two-time ABA champion with the Indiana Pacers, and the winner of the first ever NBA slam dunk contest. Uh, Darnell is a guy who has gone on to find success after his basketball career working with the Indiana Pacers where he's been the director of camps and clinics um, and uh, alumni relations for uh, a number of years and today Darnell is actively involved with the Dropping Dimes Foundation which is an organization that provides much needed help for former ABA players and their families, uh, heroes of our childhood and of the past who perhaps have fallen on hard times these days. And I'm really excited because the co-founder of the Dropping Dimes Foundation, Scott Tarter, and he's also the president of Dropping Dimes, is going to join Darnell and I during the latter portion of today's podcast and we're going to talk about the really great work that the Dropping Dimes Foundation is doing and, and maybe even talk a little bit about what we can do to, to help out those, uh, those great players from yesteryear. So, very excited. Let's get right into it. Joining me now on the Super 70s Hotline, Darnell Hillman. Darnell, how are you doing? I'm doing real good, Jeff Doing very well. I'm so excited to, to speak with you because you're one of the guys that I think of when I think of the ABA. You know, you're, you're one of those iconic figures. Uh, I think it's the Afro, uh, honestly. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, the, that's the first question that, that I think people would want me to ask, probably. But, I mean, when we talk about the greatest Afros in the history of professional sports... I think it's got to come down to you and Oscar Gamble. I mean, you guys are uh, on your own level above everybody else. Well, I'll tell you, um, the, the Afro came to me. I uh, served in the uh, United States Army for two years, and you know they make you wear the bald head. And I hated, I hated the bald head look on me. And it looks great on some others, but it just did not fit me well. And when I came out of the service, um, there was a black activist, uh, Angela Davis. I saw her afro and I said, that's exactly what I want right there. It was a message um, representing my culture as well. Plus, I like the look. So I grew the hair out. And that's the one thing that seems to stand out most. 
How big was and it? I will say that uh, it was uh, slightly, it was about 13 and a half inches all the way around. Wow. Just a little bit larger than the basketball itself. And when I run down the floor, it would just flow backwards. <laughs> and when I'd stop running, it'd come right back into a perfect round ball shape. The style that I had it in. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the fact that you had the best Afro in the ABA, that's official, right? I think at the 1997 reunion, uh, you were you were recognized as being the, the king of the Afro. Yes. <laughs> so, we have... Yes, a, I, was, I was awarded a plaque for that, and uh, <laughs> I'm very proud of that, that plaque. And actually, you know, uh, just a few years ago here, um, I was approached by Jeopardy. Really? Uh, use my yeah to use my image as a question as one of the questions on their show and uh, oh, that's awesome it was all about the afro <laughs> that's awesome yeah, I wish I could see that episode like I say that's the one thing everybody seems to remember me but I'll um after we get off this phone conversation I think I still have that date I'll see if I can't locate that for you and get that to you oh man that would be awesome I would absolutely I'd love to see. Well, listen, you mentioned uh, serving in the military, and, th and that's another one of the things about your career that I think is, is, is really unique. Um, you know, uh, you had your number retired at San Jose State, but you only played one year of varsity ball there. So, I mean, I would call that making a pretty good impression when you get your, uh, I mean, when you get your jersey retired uh, uh, in only one season of varsity ball, uh, you must have done some things that people remember. You did your part to try and uh, maintain that status, huh? <laughs>
mean, that had to be a that had to be an incredible experience because while other guys your age are, are playing out their their junior and senior years collegiately, you are traveling around the world in the army, and you guys were were basically taking on all comers. And from what I understand, uh, you guys pretty much dominated. Yes, we did. Uh, we had some tremendous players on the team. Uh, Coach K was one of my teammates at some point during the, the time, and uh, during my actually uh, this happened on my retirement of the uh, jersey at San Jose. But Coach K wasn't able to be there, but he did make a a video and he had talked about um, how he used to carry my bag. Now he was a captain, and I was just a uh, <laughs> I was just a grunt, and he used to carry my bag around. He followed me. During warm-ups, he'd come in behind me after during warm-ups, and I'd jump up and throw some dunk down, and you could hear the fans going ooh and ah, and I don't know how he and why he would choose to do that, but he'd come in behind me and shoot a layup, and it'd be total silence. <laughs> we used to laugh about that. <laughs> I bet the form. I, I bet the form in the palm of my. <laughs> I was going to say, but I bet Coach K's forum, I bet you it was a textbook layup, though, right? <laughs> oh, no question. No question. Uh, one of the most fundamentally, fundamentally sound individuals that you'll uh, ever want to meet. Uh, classy individual and enjoyed being uh, a teammate and, of his. And, I held his firstborn in the palm of my hand, and uh, that's one of the things I always get to say. And, and there was a connection there because and, uh, it, Coach K was the guy who... Uh, who uh, told you about uh, getting drafted into pro ball, too, right? Yep. We were on a bus coming from uh, Santa Rosa. Uh, we practiced three times a day during the basketball season, and we never practiced on our home court. So we happened to be up in Santa Rosa practicing there in the morning and making a trip back down to uh, Oakland, where we were stationed at, or excuse me, Presidio, where we were stationed at. And... I'm sitting on the back of the bus, and Coach K is reading uh, the newspaper, and goes, "Hey, Darnell, uh, you've been drafted." And I'm saying, "What? What are you talking about being drafted, man? I'm already sitting here. I've already been drafted. I'm sitting here on the bus doing time for the man already. We talk about being drafted." And he was telling me I got drafted into the ABA, uh, which was American Basketball Association at that time. I believe we had a team in Oakland, and. I didn't know that much about the league, but had heard some about it. So at some point, the uh, Pacers, after the draft, um, contacted me while I was in the military and had me come out to Indianapolis during the playoffs. And I met the coach and the players. And um, I had soon found out that the NBA's draft was several weeks behind the ABA's, and I was going to be drafted into the NBA, and so I asked the Pacers if they would wait for the NBA draft, and them being the team that they were at that time, they said, yes, not a problem, and draft occurred, I was drafted number eight in the first round by the NBA, behind Sidney Wicks and Curtis Rowe, and came up with the uh, Warriors said, give us 36 hours to consider these numbers and we'll get back to you. 48 hours later, had not heard from him and contacted my 
and I think uh, I was very fortunate to, to come across uh, back-to-back championships uh, my rookie year and my second year in the league. And that's all the players could ever ask for is to win a championship. That's the ultimate. I think that's why you should play the ball game. Well, I was telling you that uh, you're the only guy I know of to get drafted by the ABA, the NBA, and the and the government. So I mean, Uncle Sam got you too. I mean, that's a that's a that's a trifecta that may, may set you apart from everybody else as well. I mean, you were getting you were getting drafted a lot there uh, over the course of, of those years. But uh, I got to imagine I got to imagine getting drafted to go into pro ball that might have uh, that might have been a little more of a highlight for you. It uh, it uh, was, um, and you know, one of the other things I didn't mention, but while I was in the service, uh, as the young man came out of high school before he declared going to UCLA, we brought Bill Walton on our armed services team. He, he just graduated out of high school and had not declared where he was going to go to college, so we brought him to our armed services team. We went to New York, spent two weeks trained in New York. We flew over to Europe, getting prepared for the, I believe it was for the Chisholm Games in Yugoslavia. And Bill Walton, I would guard him when he was on offense. And then when he was on defense, he would have to guard uh, Garfield Smith, played for Kentucky. He led the nation in 19 average rebounds per game and Boston had his hands full so on the side of Garfield Smith and myself we we still talk even now till today and we say you know we had a lot to do with this young man's development because we used to beat him up pretty good practice, <laughs> I, I read a quote where Bill you know, uh, <laughs> I read a quote where Bill said that he uh, that, that you dunked on him more than a few times <laughs> <laughs> so you gave. Uh, you gave we, uh, <laughs> we had some fun. I, I, we had some fun. <laughs> he uh, he learned quite a bit, but he was a um, you know he was a tremendous. He was the number one athlete in the state of California at that time. And when we took him over to Europe with us, it was a ball game one night. We were playing. Uh, we we're in Italy, and their tallest man on their team was five foot eleven. Oh, uh oh. Wow. 
That, that's but, tough. And we all looked at that young man and said, that young man right there is the cause of this because he had a very, very good game against us that night. <laughs> Watching him go to UCLA and dominate and become a professional uh, as soon as that he was in the NBA. I'm always proud to have been a teammate of his. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to ask you, um, I know that the first couple of years that you played with the Pacers, you guys won it all. Uh, you know, you got championship rings right out of the gate as a, as, as, a, as a young guy just, you know, really getting your feet wet in pro ball. So um, what was it like making the transition? Uh, because I know, in, you know, even if you have an outstanding team in professional basketball, you're going to lose some games. Uh, it's not, you know, going 302 or whatever you were used to, uh, you know, from, from those Army years. Yeah. But what's it like? Uh, what's it like making the transition to pro basketball in terms of just what the lifestyle's like, the players being a little older and more worldly and whatever? What was what was that like for you going into pro ball? Not not necessarily the on court part of it, but just the sort of the the overall life of the pro basketball player. Well, you know, uh, being from California and. It was a, a new awakening to a, a new lifestyle, uh, having to get used to brand new teammates, guys that you didn't know, being one of the youngest guys on the team. Uh, there's a, always, you're always wondering what their expectations of you are. That's one part of it. And then the next part is the different places that you get to travel um, and live in. I had not had that much time in the Midwest, so adjusting to the lifestyle, the social activities here, the up and down and swing in the weather, this was all brand new to me, but it was a, it was exciting because I had teammates that had lived it. And of course you, uh, you get guys that you bond with on your team and they share with you what to expect and, and how to get you through it. And, we certainly had uh, George McGinnis and I came in as rookies on this team together and with Freddie Lewis, Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, Bob Mandelecki, Billy Keller. Uh, we certainly had some valuable veterans that could show us the ups and downs and ins and outs. And uh, it would be uh, beneath me not to mention um, the guy that uh, I think made it happen for most of us and that would be Bobby Smith Leonard uh, tough as nails expect a lot of you but was one of the toughest coaches I've played under was very fair and treated his players like they were family that's what we were we were like a family there we understood each and every one of our characters and personalities and we were very uh, sharing and compassion toward one another. Uh, I used to uh, be amazed at how Freddie would lead the team out on the court. And Freddie could tell what Flair had the hot hand that night. And during a timeout, we called a timeout, and Freddie would tell the guy, hey, listen, so-and-so uh, got the hot hand tonight. We've got a fish on him. We're going through him tonight. Everybody cool with that? Everybody make an agreement? Yes. <laughs> and that night, if it was you, you got the ball. And it was, you know, it was 
your turn to shine and we shared the ball like that. It wasn't the same guy dominating every night. So with George McGinnis and Roger Brown and Billy Keller and Mel Daniels, just to name a few, we had some tremendous strong ball players. But the fact that they were willing to share and I think just contribute to a great deal to our success that they knew it. Right. That's gotta be that's gotta oh, be a, yeah. That's got to be a great culture to come into as a young player. I mean, you know, you're you're on a franchise where you're learning you're learning how to play the game the right way. It certainly was. It was a a big, I think, it's a big advantage, and certainly something that um, now as a as the game has passed, I'm always honored. And when I reflect back on that how fortunate I was to be around and being under these some of uh, the kind of athletes that I've played with. Well, I know that... And I, I go back over my... Yeah. Go ahead. No, 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 go right ahead. I go back over my career and I, I look at some of the athletes that I've been able to perform with out on the um, field of battle, as I'll say, you know, I my collegiate years... I was on the track team with San Jose State, and we won the NC2A back-to-back. My teammates there were John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Lee Evans. I tell this story about how John Carlos taught me a very, very valuable lesson in life. I was down in the high jump pit. I had the bar set at six foot. And I was practicing my technique and form. And Carlos is on the track and he veers off the track and he runs over to the high jump pit. And he sees where I've got the bar at and he knocks the bar off the, the stands and he walks up in my face. And he says, what the hell are you doing? And I'm trying to step back. So I mean, now I'm six foot nine. Carlos is about six five, about 245. I should have been a linebacker. <laughs> Just tougher nails, hard. World, world record holder in the 100 and 200. And here it is, I'm a freshman. He's a, uh, he's a senior. And he walks up to me and gets right in my face and grabs me by my lapels. And he says to me, if I ever see this bar set at this height again, I will come down here in this pit and kick your big blank blank all over this field. Now while he's saying this, I'm wrestling trying to get my get my uh, lapels out of his grip so I can step back and take stand on it. I'm, I'm trying not to allow him to, you know, to punk me here. Sure. So finally, um, I did loose of his grip and I take a step back and I'm sizing him up. He's six five, about two forty, two forty five, senior, tough as nails, I'm a freshman. I'm only two hundred pounds, two ten at best. At six nine and long and wiry. So I I step back and I said, Well, Mr. Carlos, what would you like me to do? <laughs>
high enough to clear seven feet, but I always had a problem with my trailing leg, mm-hmm. and I had never had enough time to practice on my trailing leg because when I went from high school to college, I changed my jumping style. I went from a scissors kick to a uh, modified straddle. Um, world record at that time was seven foot five, and uh, Valerie Brumel was the Russian high jumper that held the world record. So I took his style and started practicing that. So when Mr. Carlos comes down, tells me this, all week long, I'm kicking this bar. Now I'm not clearing the height. I'm hitting it, and I'm frustrated. And we have our first track meet this Saturday. That Saturday, with the adrenaline running, I cleared seven feet, and I won the high jump uh, for the meet that day. Nice. ask you about the, the mentality because the story that you're telling about John Carlos and, and the lesson that you learned from that, you know, one of the things that I think allowed you to fit in so well on those Pacer teams as a young player is, I mean, you really took, you're one of the rare players, honestly, really, if we look at it, <laughs> who took as much or more pride in your defense than in your offensive game. And Slick Leonard said that you were the best defensive player uh, on those teams that, that went back-to-back in 72 and 73. Um, what, what is it that goes into someone being an outstanding defensive player beyond, beyond the physical skills? I mean, obviously, guys who are more gifted physically have a, have a leg up, but um, it, it seems to me that being a great defensive player, uh, a, a lot of that is a, is a state of mind and a, and a, and a commitment to it. It certainly is. Uh, it's a desire that you want to be a 
complete ball player. Being able to play on both ends of the floor, I think, is the accomplishment that every single athlete, if he's going to be a basketball player, should try and achieve. And to be able to be respected on both ends. You know, um, we all play basketball because we want to put that ball in the basket, and you start that at a young, young age. Well, we sometimes forget that you need to be able to work on the other end. And I came across coaches during my young years that um, I had some jumping ability, so we didn't spend a great deal of time working on the aspect of me being a a great defender, but we did work on things of having heart and a desire to play. And I think uh, as my career developed and I kept coming along in basketball, once I arrived here and, well, let me step back a minute here because my high school years, I played with a gentleman by the name of Willie Wise, who taught me how to dunk the basketball. And anybody that knows the name knows that Willie Wise was a complete ball player. Willie was just as strong defensively as he was offensively. And I learned a great deal from him. And when arriving here with the Pacers to become a part of this franchise, Roger Brown was on this team. And certainly you could say that Roger and Willie Wise were the one and two, either way you want to sip it, forwards in the league, in the ABA at that time. And, you know, get a chance to, to compete against those two and if you have any kind of uh, accomplishments against those guys on any given night then I think that says something for how hard you've worked to get there and I think you know most of all uh, defenses are willing to want to work hard um, you've got to have some heart and certainly talent helps And but most of all I think is the desire and understanding that I'm not a player until I've learned how to, to shut this guy down. You know, if I can score 40 points, but I give up 44, then what have I accomplished? I'd rather be able to hold that guy to, to 15 or 20. I remember one night uh, playing back-to-back against Julius Irving. We were out in New York, and Julius gives me 44 on a Friday night. And he just had his way with me that night. I just could not get in his head could not stop it. The next night, same number of minutes, back in our place, uh, he only scored 11. But he had the same number of shots, same number of minutes. I just had a better night. So, you know, those kinds of things there, I think, are very important. And you've got to want to uh, be a good defender. I took a great deal of pride in my ability to jump. I brought my high jumping skills to the basketball court. So that a lot of what was expected of me on the defensive end was, you know, contest some of those guys' shots. And some nights when I didn't have the hops that I expected of me, then I knew I really had to get get down on that floor and get low to the floor to play defense and try to stop the opponent. I, you know, that's something that I, I think that. Uh, people really kind of miss about your career. I mean, everybody wants to talk about the, the, the dunking ability, and, and, and I'm going to get there in just a few minutes because I want to talk about it too. But you're the number five all-time shot blocker in ABA history, which is, <laughs> which is something that I think people miss sometimes. 
uh, you know, testimony to the kind of uh, defense oh, that you I play. Didn't know that. Yeah, you're number five on the all-time list. Well, ABA block shots. So you see, there you go. Okay, well, <laughs> there you go. It's so underrated. Even even you didn't know. So so, but yeah, that's a fa- that's a fact. That's a fact. I looked that up when I was doing the research uh, for this uh, podcast, and indeed, you are right there, top five block shots. Uh, so I mean, that, that well, let's get in. First of all, your leaping ability, and you know, we've already we've already discussed it, but I mean, it's legendary and. There's a story that, that floats around that a reporter asked you one time if it was true that you could grab a quarter off the top of the backboard, and legend has it that you said, uh, you said put a $100 bill up there and we'll find out. <laughs> and he, uh, he didn't take you up on it. Uh, <laughs> so, well, the, the story is, uh, you know, when I came in as a rookie, as I said, I was a high jumper. I brought my high jumping college, um, I had some tremendous jumping days, but um, fighting myself even. So when I get here, a uh, $100 bill was put on top of the basketball, top of the basketball goal there, not the goal itself, but top of the backboard where I could see the $100 and jump up it and take that $100 down. Now, on my good days, I could unreal. Yeah, no, I, I was I was just going to ask Darnell, uh, 
what was more satisfying like throwing throwing down a, a, a really nice dunk in a game or or uh, blocking a guy's shot when uh, you know when he didn't see it coming or didn't think that you were going to be able to do it and you swatted it anyway I mean is, is that a different kind of is that a different kind of rush? Because I would imagine both of those things are, you know, pretty nice for an athlete. They are, they are very, very nice for an athlete. And yes, they are different kinds of rushes. But um, the end feeling is still pretty much the, the end result is still pretty much the same. Now, for me, because I did have such a passion and desire to uh, block shots and alter shots, there were different points in a ball game where I challenge myself. Uh, sometimes a guy can go deep out in the corner to shoot the three-pointer. Well, most guys would start from underneath the basket, running out there about that guy. While he's trying to shoot the three-pointer from deep in the corner, well, by the time you get there, ball has gone, gone past you. So, my approach was, I'd run out halfway and explode off the floor, jumping as high as I could. Now this guy is going to shoot the ball into my hand rather than shooting it over me. Most athletes don't have a very, very high arcing shot, and even those that do, depending on when I leave the floor, I still have time to get to it. And the most important part about the being a shot blocker was you've got to get the ball released from the offensive player's hand. And once he's released it, he's got no more control over it. Then it's your time to go and do what it is that you do. And positioning, I think, is very important in being able to have that happen. Or it was for myself. And I learned a great deal my rookie year and my second year in high, how in playing defense and being a good shot blocker. And I attribute a lot of that to uh, what Mel Daniels taught me there in the middle, especially giving up three and four inches every night, 45, 50 pounds every night, uh, playing in the middle. On those nights that I had to play in the middle, right. yeah, my shot blocking was going to be a, a big, a big uh, asset to me. So, right, well. and it was a big rush, you know, and playing against guys yeah. like uh, artists, and you get to block his dunk and yeah that's that's got to be pretty good yeah I, I you know I gotta ask you, you know, of course in 76 the 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 merger occurred and and the the pacers along with the the Spurs the Nets and the nuggets uh, you know went into the the NBA what was the what was the feeling of you guys in the ABA about the merger at that at that time I mean what what was the mood of the of the ABA players? Uh, as the two leagues came together? Well, I think uh, without speaking for everyone else, but my thought was that we were all excited finally to be recognized. Um, being able to play and compete against the NBA and have the nation recognize our ball game, the American Basketball Association's game, as equal and as exciting as the NBA's. It was an honor to be, you know, to be on that threshold and being one of those uh, trailblazers coming into that. Now, 
the ABA ball players, the entire ABA league, we all expected the league to merge kind of like the AFL and the NFL did. Mm-hmm. But they only took those four teams. So those of us that made it with that were like, uh, you know, this is um, kind of exciting and honorable uh, kind of thing. But now we really had something to prove uh, and still make a statement. The nation had started to hear about the ABA. The nation had started to hear about the exciting basketball in those regional areas that did get some kind of uh, broadcast on television. The NBA was concerned about that, and, you know, before the leagues merged, we had uh, NBA players playing a team playing against the ABA teams, and in 16 games, if I'm not mistaken, the ABA teams won 14 of those 16 games, and that's when they realized that, hey, uh, these guys are for real. And we better take them seriously because the fans were demanding that they put us on NBC, CBS, or ABC, and none of those networks were willing to uh, do that during that time. So once the leagues merged and we got a chance to show, and certainly, uh, you know, when you look at when the leagues merged, not only was was it that they just brought the teams in, but they brought our style of play in, the three-point play. The three stars, yeah, the three-second, uh, three-point shot, I'm sorry. Right. The dunking became a big part of watching, you know, the NBA, not to say that they didn't have guys out there dunking the basketball, but it wasn't really a high part of the game unless you were Will Chamberlain or Nate Thurman or a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But when you got to the ABA, now you're looking at guys 6'4", 6'5", jumping out the gym, throwing it down, doing 360s and everything. So there's a lot of showmanship. We had to sell ourselves. We had to do something that was going to open the eyes of the nation up and saying, hey, you know, here's another style that you can consider and look at. Um, and certainly in doing so, I think we've uh, impacted the game right now this year watch and see we've had a, a tremendous impact against the old style of play oh certainly, yeah uh, no doubt style of play no doubt I, a tremendous amount of uh, different athletes yeah the, the ABA I mean you guys were nice ahead wise, of your time. Yeah. Yeah, you guys were ahead of your time. I, I, uh, I want to ask you one more thing about your playing career, and then we'll we'll shift gears and, and get into uh, uh, what you're up to today. But I, I I've got to say, a lot of people don't know, and this is another one of these things that doesn't get discussed uh, the, the way that it should, in my opinion. But you were actually the first ever NBA Slam Dunk champion. Yep. <laughs> um. And the leagues, the leagues merge, the leagues merge, and actually, you know, the how that happened uh, was really funny because I'm still with the uh, Indiana Pacers. Now the story was after the hundred dollar bill, Bobby Slick Leonard started this story about if you put a quarter on top of the top of the backboard, I could take the quarter down and leave two dimes in the nickel. <laughs> And 
No kidding.
Yeah. So in my changing my routine and my duck, I think that's what uh, I was able to defeat and defeat Kareem that day. And I started off with call rock the cradle and pull that off. And by the time my feet hit the ground, I could hear and see some of the fans jumping up and down, screaming and hollering, ooh, and then on. And I thought, okay, I got a shot at this. <laughs> went to the, the rest of the ducks and, <clears throat> and was able to uh, to uh, defeat Kareem in the semifinals. And when I got to the uh, final in Portland against uh, Larry McNeil, McNeil could jump, but uh, I don't know why he just chose to do the same jumping five different times. He just did a chin-up each time he dunked the ball. So he tossed it on the floor and went up and dunked the ball and then did, did a chin-up. And I'm thinking, oh, I've got this. I'm going to win this thing here. <laughs> and I think- Right, because this, this thing would air during halftime, right? It would air during halftime of CBS games? Okay. Are we left to believe that the doctor, uh, 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 I mean, you're the doctor of dunk, but are we to believe that uh, Dr. J maybe didn't, didn't, maybe he didn't want any? And that's 
You are Dr. Dunk. There's only one Dr. Dunk, and I'm talking to him. I, I, let, you know, let, let me ask you, Darnell. I mean, it, it, the, the ABA is, I mean, such an important part, I think, of the, the, the history of professional sports in, in our country. And, of course, you know, you guys playing in those days... I mean, yeah. I mean, you were, you, you uh, a lot of you guys were making nice money for the time, but you know, it was nothing like it is today. Obviously, where uh, you know so, some of these guys, if they if they play their cards right, they're they're set for life. Uh, you know, after a contract or two. And I, I know today that you know, you, among other things, you're really involved in looking out for the best interest of the guys that you played with and against. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, uh, about what you're doing now to? Uh, uh, you know, look out for the best interest of, of uh, your your former teammates and opponents. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe you're speaking of we've um, got a foundation that started, and it's called uh, Dropping Dimes. Uh, Mel Daniels had a passion and had a tremendous amount in being involved with this and helping get this off the ground. But it's got. Uh, and Dr. John Abrams are the two founding fathers of this, I think, if you would like to say. 
the NBA, and one of the things that we always wanted to be was a family as a league as well. So that uh, that's where my passion comes from now is hearing and seeing about this and, and being involved with with the uh, Dropping Downs Foundation and being able to reach out and find some of these guys that, to help them get back on their feet. Um, we're very, very early in the stages of uh, getting the foundation going, but uh, we've had some early success and some really encouraging and exciting uh developments along the way and if things keep going in the way that they've been going here it won't be long before we're nationally able to reach out and find all of our comrades that might still be alive that are willing to uh, surface and allow us to assist them in whatever way possible yeah i mean i have to say i think i think uh you know it's incredible what you guys are doing and and uh, conveniently enough uh, standing by on the Super 70 Sports Hotline right now, I believe, is the president of the Dropping Dimes Foundation, Mr. Scott Tarter. S- Scott, are you there? I am, Ricky. Hello. Scott, How are you? It's th- to be on the show. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, really, really great to have you on. And, and, and you know, uh, Scott, what I, what I would like to, to, to hear a little bit is, uh, you know, kind of the origins of, of your inspiration for this and, and, and kind of the background of your life that, that, that put you in the position where uh, this was something that you found important and that you, and that you really wanted to see done for the, for the former ABA players. Well, yeah, sure. Um, several years ago, I was doing some, some pro bono legal work. I'm a, I'm a partner in a law firm in Indianapolis, and I do business law and, and that in that mergers and acquisitions type work. But on the side, I was doing some pro bono work for a documentary film producer, a very gifted documentary film producer named Ted Green. And Ted was in the process of, of uh, producing the Roger Brown documentary, Undefeated which subsequently won several Emmy Awards. You may have seen that, or some of your listeners may have seen that out uh, airing on ESPN Classic recently. And during the process of that filming, I was able to meet some of my childhood heroes uh, because, of course, Ted was speaking with some of the local ABA Pacers and getting support for that Roger Brown film. So I met for the first time during that process Mel Daniels. Um, I met... As in, at least as more than just a fan, I met Darnell, I met George McGinnis, I met Slick and Nancy, and and during that Bob Nettolicky, and during that process uh, of you know I think it took me a while to shake off the the childhood jitters of actually seeing my you know my heroes from when I was younger. Uh, you know after I finished asking them for autographs, I'm not in fact I still don't think I'm done asking them for autographs. I, I think Darnell, I was just trying to get an autograph from him yesterday. <laughs> so I, but I tried to put that part of it aside and started talking to him a little bit more about the history of the ABA and how the rest of the guys from the ABA are doing. Well, during that time period, again, two or three years ago, I just kept coming back to these stories these guys would tell me about the, the folks that are hurting. And I, I just, as, a, as an attorney, I just couldn't figure that one out, right? My first thought was, well, surely these guys made enough money that they were okay. And as I asked the guys questions about salaries at the time and spoke with a partner of mine whose family was directly involved in the ownership of the Pacers back in the 1960s, the very beginning group during the formative days of the Pacers. I learned that guys like Roger Brown were were hesitating to come and play professional basketball 
work in a factory, which is what Roger was doing in 1957 when the Pacers came to him, mm. because he could make more money working overtime in the factory than he could make playing for the Pacers. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. The, I think people forget how much the land, the financial landscape of professional sports is, has changed since those days because I, I know even uh, you know, Major League Baseball players, many of them back in, in that era, they, they, they had to work during the offseason. It, you know, it's to, to, to make ends meet. And, and, and I think that it's easy to forget in today's environment where we're hearing about this guy's making $10 million and that guy's making $20 million a year that uh, it hasn't always been that way in pro sports. And these older guys uh, who came along and really laid the groundwork for the, for the guys that are making such great bank today, um, you know, we're, we're, we're left in a tough spot in a lot of cases. Well, that's exactly right. And then, and then you know, you go a step further and say, well, surely there there was a pension program that would take care of these guys, right? I mean, the, the league lasted for nine years, and some of these teams were extremely successful. And so surely there must have been a pension program in place or some long-term health care benefits. And, you know, that, that is not true at all. When, you, when mm. you go back and take a look, some of the teams like the Spirits in St. Louis, the Kentucky Colonels, were in full swing as very successful teams in, in uh, 1976 when the league ended. And uh, and they did not go into the NBA, of course, and, and the, the teams just died. So when you think of the guys who were on the rosters of the teams who just ceased to exist, you know, everything stopped. Mid-contract, um, no, no continuing benefits, and no continuing pension benefits from the ABA. And and then, of course, if you played one, two, or three years in, in the league, you wouldn't have qualified for, for benefits even had they continued. So so then, then we sort of took a look at, then, and I'm sorry, let me back up for a minute. Then, then during this process of researching the need, I was introduced to another benefactor of Ted Green's, and at this time, um, Dr. John Abrams, who was a ball boy for the ABA Pacers, was joining me in this process, and we were both doing some research about about this notion that there are some ABA guys who are in trouble. So John and I spent a great deal of time, you know, look, talking to the former Pacer ABA Pacer players and doing some research. And boy, every every angle sort of led us to there. There has to, there there's a gap here for these folks. Uh, we even checked in and did some research on the National Basketball Retired Players Association, mm-hmm. which is in us the NBA Retired Players Association. And, and and I think that, that that group is doing some wonderful things. They're doing some fantastic things to help current pro basketball players and some former players uh, from back in the day transition from pro ball to to uh, to life house after ball. But for, in terms of the ABA guys, it's a member-driven organization, and so there's you know there's it, it's 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 not something that is reaching out and helping the guys who need help the most, in our opinion. So that's what that that was the. Uh, thought process and, and background behind getting dropping dimes going, and uh, and then boy, I tell you, the, the guys here in Indianapolis, the former Pacers like Darnell and Mel and Bob Nedelicki and Slick Leonard, as soon as as soon as John and I said we'd like to try to do something about it, they just threw the full weight of of their influences uh, to make it happen. I mean, I, I think I think it's awesome. I mean, it, you know, I mean, Darnell. I know that uh, I know that you uh, uh, been involved with the Pacers organization for for many years after your after your playing days. But can can you speak a little bit to to what it's like for an athlete, uh, you know, transitioning back, you know, if you will, into into regular life 
after the world of pro sports because uh, you know, for most of us, I mean, you you played, I think, ten years of pro ball, but you know, even even with a long career like that, I mean, you know, by the time that you were in your early thirties, uh, you know, you had you had to seg out of professional basketball and and, and and you know, look into other other areas to, for your for your livelihood. Uh, you know, what's that like for a for a young guy who is you know, been really good at a particular skill for, you know, for these years and made your name doing that. And, you know, as a young man now, suddenly you, you, you have to move on and you, ha- and you have to find something else as a vocation. It's, uh, it's, it's not an easy transition if you're not preparing yourself for it. Uh, I think uh, one of the pitfalls of being a, becoming a professional athlete is your ego grows very large. You never understand that at some point professional sports is going to come to an end. You think, hey, I'm going to play forever, or I'm going to play till I get ready to quit. You can be injured, your body can start to uh, deteriorate, and you're just not able to compete on that level. So that preparation for stepping out of the limelight, because while you're an athlete, you know, all the lights are on you, you get that camera and you get those glitz and glimmers and everywhere you go you're being recognized. Now, once that no longer is a part of your lifestyle, some guys have a difficult time in making that transition. The important thing, I think, is to be able to remember where you came from, what you come from, and keeping your feet on the ground. It wasn't a, a easy transition for myself either in that I had prepared myself for I thought I had and was, you know, expecting it to come in and ready to get back into civilian life, as I, as I call it. Um, there are some adjustments. You know, you're, you're used to walking into a room and everyone stops and stares, whereas now you're no longer out there on the floor and you no longer get that attention, that same kind of focus. Um, so I'm flattered and honored after all the years that I've, since I've played, that from time to time, I'll have a fan that does recognize me and comes over and, and tells me about that. So what I'm doing now with the, uh, with the Pacers and for myself is I'm giving back to the community that uh, gave me a basketball career and gave me this this status that I have in our society right now uh, without the fans, without the, the sport itself. Um, no one would know who Dr. Dunk is and who, what, what, what's war or whatever. So this is my way of giving back to them. And certainly uh, as a kid coming up, someone saw something in me. Uh, some of my, my peers that uh, had older brothers they used to take me under their wings and took me to the basketball court and got me started involved in basketball and track and football and things of that. Uh, I owe back to that kind of gift and what I do with the Pacers now and working with youth and uh, youth basketball. I get a chance to go out to the community and talk to the kids about the importance of staying in schools and getting an education and especially I drive that athletes or guys that are on these school teams that think they want to become a professional athlete. It's not an easy career. It's very glamorous, but it's it's not 
happen for yourself. Hey, you don't get there. So um, you have these feelings and emotions internally of how good you think you are. And then when the game is over, you would still like to have that kind of recognition. But if it doesn't come, then you find out what kind of what kind of person you're made of and what your character is. And I was determined to, to be able to give back um, of the different teams that I played for. Indiana has always been my uh, my favorite number one in my heart simply because of the, the family environment that we had here, the championship years, the, um, the camaraderie that I have with the teammates here. Um, we still see each other even today. You know, there's five or six of us that, that live in the area. And we get together once a month or so and sit down and talk about where you are right now, how fine things were back then. And this includes the coach, you know, slipping yeah. with us and we have dinner and shoot the stuff and it's great to have been a part of that, but it's an honor to still being recognized for that today, right now. And I think that's one of the strong things that uh, that stands for the Indiana Pacers. Um, yeah, the I, word term absolutely. that I learned here. Who's your who's your hospitality? <laughs> Well, I well I, I to to me it's incredible. I mean, uh, you know you, what what you guys. I mean, Scott uh, b- being an Indiana guy and and Dr. Abrams as well, and then you know just tremendous uh, the support uh, that that you know Darnell that 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 uh, that you've given dropping dimes as well as as Slick Leonard and 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 all the other names that we've mentioned. Scott, Scott I mean, what's your experience been? in terms of uh, getting the word out there, you know, out, outside of the, of the Pacers family to the, to the guys that, you know, played around the league in other cities. I mean, has it, has it been a challenge to, to get in touch with former players and to be able to reach guys? I mean, how has that kind of gone so far? No, surprisingly, it hasn't been. That was one of the, one of the earliest thoughts of ours was that, that that might be a tremendous challenge. And I'll tell you what, when, when we so quickly, Bob, Bob Nedelicki in particular, he and Mel Daniels, you know, those guys were best friends uh, their entire career and, and life after basketball. And those two guys made up their minds to help us staff our advisory board with big, big-time ABA players and, uh, and uh, nationally known figures. And they set their mind to it, and they did it. And, and so when we started having, you know, not only our initial core guys, uh, on that advisory board, including Mel and Neto and Slick uh, and George McGinnis, of course. But the next thing you know, you know, we're having guys like Spencer Haywood and George Gervin join up. You know, Bob Costas, Dan Issel. Um, we've had uh, Brian Taylor and Peter Vesey, and most recently we've had Reggie Miller join the advisory board. And wow. I think when you get when you get guys like that, Matt Calvin, Louis Dampier, that's tremendous. Guys like that, that's tremendous. Oh yeah, you. I mean, we've gotten been the beneficiaries of some pretty nice press. Uh, the word has gotten out there. We have developed a database of players, former players, that is very significant. We've, we've actually recently been approached by the NBA um, just a few weeks ago because they had some pension money waiting for a guy they couldn't locate. And uh, so they reached out to us to, to, to locate him, and, and we had his contact details immediately available and connected them with him. And that's a story that's public now. That was Willie Long, former Indiana Mr. Basketball uh, in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. And uh, so Dropping Dimes Foundation was able to connect 
him directly, and we got him some long lost pension money. That's fantastic. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, that's that's uh, that's. I mean, I know that that's what your mission is about. Is uh, you know, is is is, is getting uh, uh, those funds to, to to these guys. I mean, where where do you see this going? I mean, <clears throat> obviously, uh, uh, you know, you're you're off to a ter terrific start. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, wh what what's next for dropping dimes? Well, I've, I've joked about the fact that uh, that our goal is to go out of business because <laughs> you know because our constituents are, are are guys who are really hurting you know and it's it's real and the, the need is real. We have a significant number of applications for assistance that are pending right now that we're trying to we're trying to provide some help for some guys on. We've got a, a long list already of guys we've helped, and um, you know if we can gain the right kind of support and the right kind of traction, I, I think this this is not a long term project. Because, you know, because the, the Pacers have been fantastic. The Pacers and the Simon Foundation have stepped up. Um, several advisory board members, um, without any solicitation, because uh, we wouldn't do that, have stepped up financially and in other ways to assist. And if, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to have discussions with the NBA and the, and the uh, NBRPA. And, and I'm, I, our hope is that we get this thing national. Um, even more so than it is today, we get the support of some of these significant players. Um, you know, I use that as a metaphor. You know, some of the players in the industry in pro, in pro basketball. Sure. And hopefully, we get in support behind us that we can we can provide enough assistance for these guys that uh, you know, several years down the road, we won't even be needed anymore. That would be a wonderful thing. I mean, and where does the funding come from? I mean, I, I you know, I guess I'm asking. You know what, what? What can I mean? You know, I'm a passionate ABA fan. I have been for uh, you know thirty years or more. Uh, even though I was a, a little bit too young to actually remember it, I was just always just fascinated with with this league. And 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 I, I remember reading Loose Balls by Terry Pluto when I was a teenager, and it was just the, the ABA was just this larger than life thing to me. And and I, and I suppose that it still is in a lot of ways. And you know, as an as somebody who has gotten so much enjoyment out of the ABA through the years, just as a fan, you know, what can I do to help? What can my listeners do to help to uh, to further your mission? Well, the great part about that is that the Dropping Dimes Foundation is so quintessentially ABA, right? Because all of our, well, the vast majority of our assistance come comes from guys like you and your listeners, who are, you know, ABA fans at heart. And we get everything from, you know, I've, I've received $5 cash donation from the son of a man who was a tremendous ABA fan. We get $10 donations, $20 donations, you know, all the, all the way up to more significant donations. But the vast majority of the funding we've received to date has come from dyed-in-the-wool ABA basketball fans, many of whom can't afford to, to even donate more than 5 or 25 or $50 but they're willing to do it to help out these these, these former players. And, and uh, people can help us by going to our website at droppingdimes.org, and there's a secure way to, to make donations through our website. And uh, those donations are tax deductible. We are a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. Um, and, and people can also send donations to our address, which is 111. Monument Circle, Suite 2700, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46204. And uh, either of those would work. And then we have benef we, we have uh, fundraising 
events periodically. And, uh, and so we'll publicize those on our website. We have a Twitter account, so if people would follow us on Twitter, that would be fantastic. I, and I just and I just did that <clears throat> I just did that yesterday by the way I found you guys on Twitter so you got a new follower in me and and that's uh, in in what in what is the uh, the, the Twitter uh, handle oh man now our, our guy Taylor's gonna hate me for not knowing that off the top of my head hang on <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's at dropping that's my man there yeah, I don't feel bad because man when you start talking about that kind of language say great and a great guy uh, you know taylor taylor uh, helped to set this uh podcast up and uh i'll give a shout out to taylor here myself who uh who just seems like a terrific guy you know i thought i'm six foot three and i and i thought you know when i when i first heard that taylor was willing to volunteer i, I didn't realize his basketball background and i thought well maybe i'll finally get to work with one of these guys here at the foundation that isn't a foot taller than me and, and you know the kids today he's almost as tall as darnell so <laughs> okay, so so the Twitter handle is at dropping dimes sixty seven. All right, at dropping dimes sixty seven, and the sixty seven. I'm going to guess that was the that was when the ABA originated. Absolutely. There you go. So. Uh, uh, at Dropping Dimes 67 and uh, DroppingDimes.org is the website, correct? And uh, and if you want to go ahead, Scott, and repeat the, uh, the the mailing address as well for my listeners. Okay, the mailing address is again Dropping Dimes Foundation, one 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 Monument Circle, Suite Number Two Seven Zero Zero, Indianapolis, Indiana, four six two zero four. I right. should have also said that we are we have an Instagram account as oh, well. But, yeah, uh, no, go right ahead. Please don't. Uh, please don't ask me how to find that one. I mean, hopefully you're listening. <laughs> you're on your own. We're going to assume I'm. I'm not really on Instagram myself, so I can relate to you guys on that one. So I'm sure if you're on Instagram, you're you're industrious enough that you can find dropping dimes. Uh, that, I will. <laughs> they're out there. Yeah, I will say this: that, uh, that uh, Taylor is so good about the social media that if you want to follow us on Twitter, if you if you're an ABA fan, if your listeners are ABA fans, you will find a tremendous amount. Of, of fantastic articles and references to ABA history that uh, Taylor tweets out every day. Yeah, most definitely. I could tell that right away because I was uh, I was just looking around for you guys on the web and 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 I saw the the, the Twitter account and I uh, uh, you know I just scrolled down through the feed or whatever and I, I saw about three or four things that I didn't have time to read at the at the moment. But I thought, okay, well, I got to follow these guys because you know I want to go back and, and and read all this good stuff and uh, you know a lot of a lot of uh, photos as well. So yeah, I can definitely uh, I can definitely recommend it uh, if you if you follow uh, at Super 70 Sports, uh, I, I think you would definitely enjoy uh, following Dropping Dimes uh, uh, just just for the just for the great ABA content. Thank you. 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So, well, listen, guys, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, uh, Darnell means a, means a tremendous amount uh, uh, having you on the having you on the show. Been a fan of yours, uh, you know, since I was a kid, and uh, you know, you're truly a gentleman. And I, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, Scott, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I got to say, uh, you know, when I when I spoke to you, uh, uh, talked to you about dropping dimes uh, and, and what you guys were doing, I mean, just immediately, I thought to myself, what a what an incredibly worthy cause, and uh, you know, what a fantastic thing you've done to uh, to, to get this off the ground. And uh, you know, all I can say to my listeners is, uh, uh, you know, go go to droppingdimes.org and, and, and consider doing what you can. I'm I'm going to pledge right now to you that that that. I'm going to go to droppingdimes.org and, and I'm going to make a donation uh, personally because uh, you know for the uh, for the amount of enjoyment that uh, that these athletes have given me uh, as a fan, uh, I feel that, it, that that it's only the right thing to do, and uh, I, I hope that. Uh, my listeners uh, will go to droppingdimes.org as well and consider giving what you can. I mean, even if it's only five or ten dollars, as as Scott said, every every little bit helps. So, uh, Scott, I, I you know I gotta I gotta tell you, man, I I think what you're doing is wonderful, and uh, you know I wish you the best, and uh, and and you know down the road, uh, you know I'd love to have you on the I'd love to have you on the podcast again, and, and, and you can you know keep me up to date and my listeners up to date with uh, what's going on with the Dropping Dimes Foundation. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I I think that that would be absolutely great, and and, and I know that uh, I know that my followers are, uh, are uh, would would love that as well. So, uh, Darnell, my friend, th- thank you so much. Ricky, Ricky, if I can if I can jump in here, yeah, real quick, for please a couple do. Of minutes, please do, uh, and, and and say something here. First of all, uh, thanks for having me and inviting me on the show. It's been a pleasure to be here and to share some of my uh, past career along with you and your listeners. But um, I want to thank you for taking the time to bring Scott Ed Green and Dr. John, John Abrams to uh, the light of our ABA fans. Uh, dropping Dimes is going to be a way of being able to connect and keeping those memories going afloat. Certainly it, it is a great cause, but one of the things that I'm honored in being with these gentlemen, the reason that I'm honored for being with them is over the years while Mel was coaching and being a scout and traveling around the country, he was still meeting up with guys that were around we played against during the ABA. And it was Mel coming back to Indianapolis telling us about the stories and hearing about what was happening, which uh, was a big factor in why we had the first reunion back in 97 here. Mm-hmm. All the players that played in the ABA wanted the Pacers to have that simply because of how we were as a family. And certainly Mel had a big passion for the ABA ball players and hearing these stories and hardship things. This really was a blessing that here we had three guys right here in the same city that had the same compassion uh, and the fact that they were able to meet up I saw the gleam in Mel's eye once he got involved with this and his sharing his thoughts with me about Dr. Abrams, about Scott.
says a lot about these guys, and I'm looking forward to seeing Dropping Dimes just take right off. So have your listeners, please, help us any way you can. We definitely appreciate it. Well said, well said, Darnell, and uh, and I, you know, I, all I can all I can do is is you know wish you guys all the all the greatest of success in the world. And uh, Scott, let's do this again in the future. I'm good, Ricky. Thank you very much for having us today. Uh, all right, fellas, be well. Thank you. All right, take your turn. Okay. What a great conversation that was. My thanks again to Dr. Dunk, Darnell Hillman. And big thanks as well to the president of the Dropping Dimes Foundation, Scott Tarter, for joining us. And I have so much respect for the work that those guys are accomplishing today on behalf of our heroes from the 1970s who uh, made such an impact, uh, I know, on my life. And hopefully uh, through uh, our generosity, we can help make an impact on theirs today. My guest next week, I've got a great treat for you. My guest is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff has written uh, a number of fantastic books, and I can say that I have them on my bookshelf. Uh, one, of the, one of the best writers going today. Uh, Jeff has written biographies of Walter Payton, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. He's also written a terrific book about the 1990s Dallas Cowboys uh, and the 1986 New York Mets as well. Uh, his current book is called Showtime. And it's about the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers. We're going to talk about all those books and more. We're going to talk about the books that he has in the pipeline. He's got a couple of really interesting projects. One book that's going to be coming out this fall is a biography of Brett Favre. And I'm sure that John Madden is already uh, breathlessly awaiting that one. And he's also working right now on uh, the story of the United States Football League. So, so many great things to talk about with Jeff next week. Uh, tune in to the, the podcast next time, and uh, I'll see you then. In the, in the meantime, uh, keep it cool, and I'll see you on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Show it, show it.